Hello everyone and welcome back to Growing With My Fellow Growers. This is Jack Greenstock filling in as always for Shane of the Cheap Home Grow podcast. I'm joined tonight by a panel as always of amazing growers and our IPM specialists. So I'm gonna go ahead and start off by introducing first Kyle Breeder. Hey Jack, thanks for hosting. Glad everybody's here. Um, yeah, if anyone's looking at any kind of I want to see some of the work that I'm working on currently is uh, you can check out any social media platform at Predicated Breeding. If you're looking for good feminized seeds, you can feel free to check out my website, which is the letter P followed by breeding.com. And uh, yeah, Jack, thanks for everything. And uh, I hope everyone's doing all right. Thank you, Kyle, for joining us. We always appreciate your time. Next up, Matthew Gates. Yeah. Hey, everyone. This is Matthew Gates, Integrated Pest Management Specialist and if you're interested in IPM information, you can check me out in three places. Instagram at SyncAngel, where I share a lot of my content. YouTube, Zentinel, which is the same account that I'm using currently to speak in chat. And also on Twitter at SyncAngel as well. Thank you again for joining us, Matthew. I was actually just uh, providing your information to a few friends who were looking for IPM stuff. So always great to have you. Next up, we got Brandon Rust. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Um, if you're not familiar with myself, uh, you can find my work um, on Instagram at Rust Brandon. Um, you can also find a link to my company, Bokashi Earthworks, and the uh, cultivation facility that I am the director of. Thank you for joining us, Brandon. And lucky in the background for anybody who's curious about the bird chirps, that is Brandon's macaw. Pretty awesome bird. So. You can see him over there helping shuck seeds, as Brandon was telling us before the show. Probably eating a few in the process as well. Next up, Spartan Grown. What's up, everybody? I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word. I'm a organic home grower or a synthetic commercial grower. I do a little of both. It's nice to have the uh, both perspectives, for sure, and uh, small scale and much larger scale, for sure. We always appreciate your perspective, and thank you again for joining us. It's good to have you back. The American one. Hey Jack, I'm Connell, and hello everyone in chat. It's good to be here tonight. Uh, I'm the American one on YouTube. I should really put up some more stuff on uh, YouTube. And I'm the American one underscore with underscore 18s on IG. If you search for the American one, you'll see the little guy with the American top hat. That would be me. Um, I'm glad to be here tonight. We're glad to have you. And I agree, you should definitely post more stuff up until the point that your accounts start getting targeted. like. Brandon's accounts unfortunately get targeted when he posts too much it seems uh, eventually stuff circuit deleted which is a bummer but I don't think it should just uh, dissuade anybody from making any posts in general but if anybody has saw and I've seen a few people in the chat ask the question uh, what happened to Rob Smith uh, from the homegrown helpers podcast well unfortunately he passed away unexpectedly this week that is the extent to which I know and am comfortable sharing I actually don't know more I saw a post from his wife on her social media saying that he passed unexpectedly a few days after um, he recorded the show with us last week. So it was a big shock to both myself and probably a lot of members in the community because um, no one ever really expects to see that stuff coming. He was planning on doing recordings with myself and other people on the panel in the future. And he was definitely one of us in this community and a great member of this community. So what I wanted to do, um, I know this might sound a little tacky or cliche on a podcast, but I just wanna have everybody we're gonna go mic off for one minute to give a moment of silence. Um, people could put some smoke signals up in the air, 
in remembrance and honor to Rob. And uh, when we come back, I'll say a few more words. Definitely want to give a big rest in peace, rest in power to Rob Smith of the Homegrown Helpers podcast. He was also a producer of the Growcast podcast. He was a big part of the Growcast membership over there, and a lot of people were big fans of what he had going on. He did a bunch for this community. He was much like ourselves, where he was passionate about both learning and sharing the knowledge and trying to make sure that people had the best knowledge available to themselves. So wanted to give a big shout out to him. And in his honor this week, we're going to uh, go around the panel and anybody who knew him a little more personally can share maybe a story or some good things that they have to say about him. And then after that, we're going to uh, go through the chat and try and answer as many questions in honor of like him and his show, The Homegrown Helpers. We want to sort of pay respect to that and help as many home growers as we can this week. And I feel personally that um, I've tried to focus mainly on the panel in the last few weeks or months and uh, have let a lot of the chat slide by. So it's sort of like two separate shows. You've got the show going on in the chat and you got the show going on with the panel, what we're talking about, which I think is great, but I think uh, tonight we'll unify them both and um, try and answer as many of your questions as possible to help as many home growers as we can. So with that said, I think uh, the first person, um, maybe the only person who may have more to say uh, this week, I don't know, somebody else may have uh, additional things, but Dr. MJ, I wanna give you an opportunity uh, to share a little bit about Rob. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Um, you know, this is, I'm just like a little bit caught up. I, I knew Rob for the last couple of years. Um, talked to him quite a bit about the Atlas Plant Trainer. Um, that's how we first started to start getting to know each other. Um, and I was involved with, with Jordan and Rob and, and helping them sort of deal with some things with getting Growcast set up and, and, uh, doing interviews with homegrown helpers and, and with Growcast. And, you know, Rob was always really eager to collaborate. And uh, he was a really kind guy. Um, he really embodied the spirit of collaboration that we tried to, to promote and that he really enjoyed sort of working with us in, in that regard. And uh, I had a great deal of respect for him. I, we had plans and hopes to, to continue to sort of tie our communities together and to do things together. Um, and he, yeah, he was on our show last week. Um, and I think everybody here got to, to see, you know, parts of his kindness and how much he cared about the cannabis community, how much he cared about fellow home growers, fellow people that had struggled with, with health issues. And he talked to us a little bit about some of his health issues. Um, you know, I've reached out to Jordan. Um, we don't know exactly what 
what happened. Um, and I, I think that, you know, Jordan is in contact with his wife, but I'm just trying to be very respectful and, and really sympathetic to the situation. Um, there's been a lot of people that have reached out to, to try to set do some donations or, or charitable things or other things like that. And his wife sort of specifically um, sort of demurred from, from that and just asked people to, to focus on their own families. Um, I'm gonna talk to Jordan, see maybe if we, we wanna put something together where people could donate to a charity that Rob supported or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that message from his wife is really important that this was a guy that, that loved life, was in the middle of his life and had family and friends that, that loved and supported him. And, and I think that he really, he, he lived his life in a way that, that let the people around him know that he cared about them. And... I hope that that's the lesson that we can we can get from this and and to take his wife's advice and and think about our own families and our own friends as as a way to remember Rob. Doc, I think that's a very beautiful sentiment, and I just wanted to agree with you on the fact that he's truly an amazing guy. I got to know him very recently with the show. Um, I knew of him, and I listened to him on the Cheap Home Grow podcast when Shane interviewed him, and I was interested in his company, the Atlas Plant Trainer. Um, I recommended it to many growers throughout my times, uh, helping new growers that were interested in plant training. Uh, I've listened to many episodes of the Growcast and a few of the homegrown helpers as well. And um, I will say that it, his passing taught me a valuable life lesson recently. And it was that um, him and I were sort of having a dispute on the, D the DMs a little bit before he came on the show about a product that I use and love, the Michigan Made Mix M3 Soil. And uh, him and some other guys on their panel had made a few like claims that I had disagreed with. So I DM'd him and one of his uh, members, Rizo Rich, sort of like disagreeing with some of the claims they had made. And to be honest, I, looking back at it, was being a little bit uh, defensive and maybe even overly aggressive, like calling them out and asking for uh, proof to support their claims and things like that. But he was super uh, kind and patient with me. And he was like, you know what, man? Uh, I don't think DMs are the place to discuss this. So if you want to call me and talk to me on the phone about this, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. And it was at like 5 a.m. Uh, he's on the East Coast, I believe. So I didn't reply. I like woke up in the morning, saw it and forgot about the message. And a few days went by and he came on the show and he was a total gentleman the entire show, never made anything awkward. You all saw last week, he was extremely uh, kind and generous with his time and information. And after the show, um, we don't normally do this at all, but I saw his name after he left pop back up in the zoom chat and I added him I thought maybe it was a mistake but I was like you know what maybe he wants to come in and talk or something and he's like oh I thought you guys do like a little after sesh or whatever so we hung out and smoked for probably like 45 minutes and we had a deeper discussion about that conversation I was talking about with the M3 where I basically the show last week yeah so Tao was in there for like the first two or three minutes before he left but um I'm sorry I missed that it's all good but we sort of had like a spirited debate a little bit about the claims that he made and he conceded to a few of the things and I conceded to a few of the things that he thought about and we both came out sort of what I would say like a lot friendlier and happier we had put that beef or settled that whole uh it really wasn't even a beef on his end I was just upset about some of the claims that he made and he was super um 
kind and, and understanding with me in going through that. And we got to a place where him and I were actually planning to record a Homegrown Helpers episode in the future. So it was uh, literally shocking when I opened the Instagram and heard the news because it was like, holy shit, man, I just talked to him like a few days ago. And him and I had we all did. Yeah. thankfully just gotten off on the right foot because I think in the life lesson that I was getting to is like, sometimes it's best to let bygones be bygones and like put that little stuff uh, in the past. And um, in my opinion, it was, it was just me being like ego driven and petty, <laughs> but I needed to uh, show a little bit more maturity and he helped me develop that within myself as a person. So a lot of respect to Rob for his patience and uh, understanding and uh, making me a better person. And uh, just wanted to give him lots of respect and love for that because when somebody passes away, I know that's often one of the times that people actually celebrate and respect and love them, but it might be unjust. I think we should celebrate people while they're alive too. But in this case, I definitely wanted to uh, give the option to uh, everyone here to have a moment to sort of remember him for all the good that he did within the community. With that said, I want to open it up. Does anybody else on the panel have uh, experiences or comments or thoughts that they'd like to share before we get into some Q&A with the chat? I just will sit, uh, step in and say, you know, I didn't know Rob personally, but I knew of Rob and I knew what he did and what he, he did for the community. So even people that don't know him can still respect what he stood for and, uh, you know, mourn his passing. So, uh, you know been blowing smoke up to him already this whole time so that's the best i can do <laughs> oh yeah man i totally totally agree with that and um it's like one sub cool past i never actually physically met him in person um but once you get to know somebody online you can build a relationship and get to know about them and at the end of the day we all sort of share that same mission of we love this plant we want to grow this plant as best as we can and we want to share as much information as we can about the the plant so that's the one unifying thing and he was really a true member of our community so it's definitely a big loss. Similarly, I didn't have a very close relationship with Rob myself, but I do appreciate the sentiment that you're talking about, Jack. And uh, to that end, if anyone does have um, questions or things that I can help with in the chat right now, IPM-wise or cultivation-wise, um, you know very well that this is something I share with that um, sort of sentiment, is that it's important to help people, as many people as possible. And uh, meeting somebody who very much shares that ideological uh, bend is um, is a, a treasure, and I'd like to honor that. Yeah, I didn't know Rob very well either, but with the short interactions and um, having him on the show, um, being from where I am, I see a lot of people and a lot of characters, and I'm a pretty good judge of, of people in general, and Without a doubt, I could see you would be someone that I would love to hang out and smoke a joint with. So, and it's just so bizarre how life is fleeting. And if you don't take the time to like time with people, it might not be there. So um, yeah, it's a loss and uh, yeah. I know that he's not here currently, but um, Aaron, Aaron the grower um, is also uh, sort of observing some personal time in a remember, or maybe not in remembrance, but at the very least in um, uh, sort of in honor of this sort of uh, life is fleeting sentiment and observing that fact. Yeah, he did an episode very recently where uh, him and Rob were on the Homegrown Helpers together um, talking about cannabis. And I think they 
when you do a show like this, I, I would personally feel devastated if any of you guys passed on this panel. Like, and I've never met, I've met a few of you actually in person at this point, but I feel like we've grown a relationship and it's almost like we're an extended family at this point. And we see each other every week, sometimes more than our actual family and, and talk and stay in touch more than our family. And I do care about all you guys individually. So it really um, just, I think it is a great time just to celebrate the community because a lot of the times we do see division. Um, I gave an example myself of sort of, I was participating in sort of the negative aspects sometimes of our community, but focusing most on the positive, blowing those big clouds of smoke, doing like Spartan groans, doing over there, keeping smoke in the air, keeping well medicated and uh, sharing the love too, because it's um, as, as good as we can do for ourselves, um, helping others is an amazing thing, whether it's gifting them some cannabis oil or flour or, you know, teaching them how to produce their own. I think we've all done a huge deal in this community uh, for certain individuals. You know, we all probably have gotten DMs of people being extremely thankful and grateful. And that's part of the thing I think that keeps us all pushing forward. So I just want to remind everyone in the chat to, uh, oh, here we go. We finally got a question. Anthony H. Promix. Jack's nutrients, hand water with the wand and pump. Actually, not a question, just a comment. Oh, just upgraded from a five by five to a four by eight. Plan on doing my first trellis setup. Six plants. Any advice? And the nutrients and uh, medium was from the same individual. So Spartan Grown, I know that you um, don't really run a trellis, do you? Or um, I'll throw I it do. over to you and ask your thoughts. I do run trellis. Oh, let me see. So you upgraded from a five by five to a four by eight. Um, my first question is, did you add a light? Um, plan on doing my first trellis setup, six plants, any advice? And what was the other stuff? He did, okay, Promix, Jack's nutrients. All right, so we're basically talking about hydroponic situation. Hand water with a wand and a pump. Um, my first question is lighting. Um, if you're moving into a space that's a four by eight, that usually requires two lights. I'm not aware of any one light setup that's going to be sufficient to light that space Except i would agree it's almost going to be no i'm not either two four by four lights side by side i wouldn't have to deal with that light if it showed up either <laughs> yeah he goes yes plenty of light okay so he's good on light um and I, I, what specific question is he asking he's just like anything at all i mean my biggest thing would be how are you doing on your watering that's the number one mistake um, are you watering to runoff? Are you watering? Uh, are you waiting for the plants to dry out sufficiently between waterings? Um, that's the number one thing that you can add, I think, to a home grow to improve yields. Because <laughs> it's generally their watering like cycle or how their watering is usually incorrect. I would definitely tend to agree with that. Either they're doing it too often or going in with like too heavy of a nutrient mix sometimes even. I see that's a pretty common problem for new growers is they might just follow the actual recommendation and as opposed to cutting it in like a quarter or half which i think yeah. is a more safe starting spot i don't know what jack's nutrients recommendations are i think they might actually be safe uh, it's like i hear a lot of people do the three two one uh, i think that was called the lucas formula for a little while yeah. oh he's talking okay he, he he clarified he's talking about just in ch doing trellis in general so trellis in general is I would uh, count on using the biggest mistake I see in a home growth setting is people will use only one and they'll put it down early and the plant will grow through it and it's not really doing anything at that point. So what most people will do instead of trying to figure out when is the perfect time to hang the net, they'll hang that first net at the same time and use it just to spread the plant out. It's, you're using it to, to 
fill the space basically. And then use that second net, use a second layer of netting to actually be the one that's holding, you know, the final plants in, in place. So they're not, you know, falling. The, the goal usually is, I don't know how big of a square is you're using on your thing, but the goal is usually at least a branch through each square, if not two on some people. It all depends on your plant and how much you like the top. But uh, yeah, I would, I would tend, it's just so much easier to go with the two nuts because the first one kind of helps you, helps you get the plants spread out to, and direct them to where you want to go. And then you use that stretch, that first few weeks of stretch, you use that stretch to fill your net, your, your upper net. I think that's great advice, Spartan. I just wanted to say they said they have anxiety about being locked in and they already sort of um, corrected. One of the issues is difficulty watering in the back of a four by eight tent. If the plants are all trellised in, it, getting those plants in the back row, you'll probably have, uh, if you're doing six plants total, you might have like one or two up front and then one or two in the back. It depends on like if you're going to do three in each square, essentially, it, they'll be in probably like a triangle pattern. And you'd probably set up two in the front, one in the back. But that one in the back is going to be more of a pain in the ass to water. So having that watering wand will alleviate a lot of the uh, negative aspects of having a trellis. And totally agree with Spartan on trying to fill up as many squares as possible and using that stretch and multiple um, levels of the trellis netting. Because other than just like growing through it, uh, some people just doing one, like you said, it, it doesn't do much other than barely support the bottom of the plant. And the anxiety, I think, should be relieved by using a trellis because if you grow a plant like gorilla glue or chem that tends to like snap its branches off because they get too big and fat that trellis will support and then you're just like hey you know even if it flops over it's going to get caught by a rope and it'll be still getting adequate light it's not going to break off and ruin my yield or cause some sort of other issues matthew a question about ipm um, in regards to snapping off if you're not using a trellis like when a branch let's say outdoor or even indoor gets blown over in the wind or if it's too heavy from the yield what are the common pathogens that you'd be worried about with like an open wound on a plant or is it really regional in that regard? And is latent flower, is there something that could like really infect your plant if you lost a branch, got infected and then it could quickly spread? Uh, yeah, absolutely. On the, on the last thing that you had said, uh, there are several pathogens that you could have. Wait, hold on one moment. Okay, that's better. Um, so, so there are many, many, many pathogens that uh, that that can uh, ingress through a wound, um, whether you break a branch or or you slightly bend it or you pierce it somehow. Uh, Fusarium is a fungus that's very common. There are many kinds of Fusarium fungi out there, very various species, and yeah, even pathovars. And um, there are Fusarium. Uh, species that do infect cannabis, for example. Um, you can also get uh, pythium, especially below the the um, the sort of substrate line, whatever you're growing. Um, that's a pretty com it's pretty commonly vectored by like insects as well, and that sort of a thing. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think if there's any other ones that pop out at me at the moment. Um, and like, how would that present itself? Like late flower, if I'm in like, let's say weeks five or six on an eight week plant, I have one branch snap off and uh, pythium overtakes it. Is that plant dead in a week or is it just losing a bunch of yield? Like, how does that manifest? So typically the the visual symptoms that you would have, like if you don't, usually you don't, 
you might not know exactly what species you're dealing with. Kind of like I think what you're alluding to here is that you'd be at least curious to see what the kind of general morphology of such an infection looks like. Um, what I've seen oftentimes is after a um, um, branch usually is uh, broken off, maybe it's sheared off or something like this, the um, end of the branch will start to dry up. And under some conditions, it just dries up and then the plant kind of like abscesses it over time where like it loses, or, lo or at the very least it loses its um, rigidity and it becomes easily uh, broken off at like the node or the closest node. Um, but what can also happen sometimes is that like, especially if it seems like the drying doesn't happen uniformly or there's something that prevents it or like water gets into there or, or, or pathogen gets in, especially in moist conditions um, or high humidity, fungus can grow around. And it's usually a white fuzzy look that's on um, either the dead tissue, the necrotic tissue, the dried tissue, it might look like. Um, and it might also be spreading even into the uh, green tissue. You might even see it kind of come up. You might see like a violet or purplish tint sometimes with a fungal infection. Fusarium is one example. In a lot of plants, it can have this sort of like purplish tint. As well, um, you could have just like dark, sort of a dark coloration. And if you touch it like oozes or um, if that's the case, then you're, you might be dealing with a bacterial infection, like kind of a mucosal sort of slime, um, if that makes sense. And then like if you touch it or if you apply a lot of pressure, it'll like definitely like sort of be soggy and um, might easily break off. That's so I'm seeing like in, in chat somebody recommends putting honey on the wound. I was curious if you have uh, any thoughts on that or any other application of something that you would put on the wound or the scar to prevent maybe some of these issues other than you running a trellis to prevent it from snapping off in the first place. Although I'm familiar with the antimicrobial effects of like honey um, in, in certain cases, I'm not sure it'd be the greatest thing to put on a wound. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I thought about the antimicrobial properties of it, but then I also thought about sort of it may attract other nefarious organisms. Yeah, the first thing that comes to my mind is what Dr. MJ just kind of alluded to, too, that you, you know, you might have insects that are attracted to the sugar, uh, then they come and then they vector the pathogens that you were trying to avoid. I would just put out there that, you know, it's always a good idea if you're dealing with a wound on the plant um, that's significant, then to try to protect it from, you know, air, basically to wrap it up, um, protecting it from air also protects it from pathogens and other things like that that could potentially come in. Uh, and the plant will will recover from injuries a lot easier if it's not sort of exposed to the elements. I echo that sentiment. There's something called like tree paint in arborism where they are growing trees and they have like a, a cut or a wound to the tree. Yep. And there's something, um, there's a process that I believe cannabis also does where it's like, there's an acronym for it. It's like skid or something, something systematic decay in trees or something like that, where I've seen on a cannabis plant where when you split it, the stalk like basically grows uh, back over itself, like a, a scar almost essentially. And it does sometimes have a tendency to heal itself but other times it doesn't it will seem do to well it will really heal itself if you can wrap it up and protect that like if you like top the plant and leave a stump if you wrap up that stump it'll harden off and become like a hard little like a callus right 
Yeah, if you don't wrap it up and you just sort of let it, it'll wither up and kind of like die off. Um, you usually don't need to sort of wrap those up, but it, it it's a good sort of illustration of what happens when you protect an injury from air versus when you don't protect an injury from air. Um, and I, I use just, you know, grafting tape. Um, saran wrap works well to cut little sort of strips of saran wrap or plastic wrap or whatever. Um, and just wrap the plant up in that. If it's protected from air for like three to four days, it will be able to sort of protect itself after that. I just fucking strip that fucker clean, make sure it's a clean cut as close as I can to the main stock. Yeah. Fucking leave it like that. Let it do its thing. I, I agree. If you're doing clean cuts, you usually don't have to worry about it. But the, we're talking about like if a branch rips off and leaves like a gnarly gash or something. I'm yeah, that's what I mean. I clean it. I, I just clean that up. I, I'll take scissors and I'll just clean that up, make it in one clean cut. Yeah. Even if just... it's a, a top, though, like even if you are intending to top the plant, there's that little like spot on the plant that there's sort of a like a when you have a plant that's a bleeder, it'll bleed like the xylem sap starts to flow out of it and i heard an old school guy that said just take a piece of perlite out of your pot and rub it on there and it'll dry it up and start to seal it over faster but i was wondering if that'd be a positive or a negative thing to have it dry out quicker or if you'd want the sort of natural gel that would seal itself i wasn't i, I would like sure. i would like the the to me if i see that fluid coming out it's a good sign because to me that means there's no air going back in you know i want that fluid to keep flowing out until it heals over because I'm afraid of the air getting back, getting an air embolism into the plant. But I mean, I think, I mean, everybody's got cloning solution around. You could do that if you're that worried, you know what I mean? Uh, you could probably rub that on there. And uh, I don't know about the, if you're in flower or something, the hormones might do something wonky, but uh, that's kind of what that stuff's designed for as far as to keep the bad stuff out to allow that plant to start rooting. I'm reminded of the story, that I think I've said it before, but of um, a Gerber grower I've worked with where the way that they were harvesting the flowers is that they would break off the stems and the stems would get infected with a yeast. And um, that yeast, like you could smell like the fermented sort of scent from the wound, uh, the infected wound, and it would attract various insects like flies uh, and also uh, strawberry beetles and pineapple beetles. And the scouse thought that it was that the beetles were causing the problem. And eventually they did because when they would feed on the yeast in the wound, then they would travel to other plants that had no wounds. And then they would eat um, the uh, stems that were very, very uh, like sort of juicy almost. It was, I remember they had, uh, there's a lot of photosynthesis going in. That assimilation was on point. Um, but uh, that vector, then they would vector the yeast itself. So you can run into a problem with that with cannabis as well, if you're not careful. I wanted to give Anova a shout out. They recommended aloe in regards to the plant splitting. Um, using that might be beneficial. They also said earlier in the four by eight conversation, if you do have a four by eight, try and make sure you have access to as many of the sides as possible. We might think, oh, let's say it's in a spare bedroom. You might think, let's put it all the way in the corner of that bedroom just because it's convenient, easiest to walk around or whatever. But if you have the option to be able to walk all the way around it and have access to the back wall or the every single door, set it up so this might sound really obvious but i've seen people set it up so they have one or two doors blocked access just because of the convenience and they just didn't think about it going into the setup so be um conscientious when you're thinking about how you place your grow tent to give yourself access to as many of those ports and doors as possible the major army 
or the major general, 420 Army, says, whole branch will die and it will spread. Tea tree oil helps. Neem just slows it down but won't stop it. So I wanted to go ahead and throw that into the conversation. E says, how to force anthocyanin into a plant? What can we foliar? Personally, I wouldn't try to force anthocyanin into any plant. I would look for plants that are bred with high anthocyanin levels already and try and get them to express a little bit more through things like UVA or UVB light. Um, personally, a little safer and easier way to get that though. I use 440 nanometer blue on top of whatever my white LED light is at 3500K. Um, basically a white LED cob. And then I have blue, which has been scientifically shown to increase both anthocyanin production and terpene production. So not only will your plants be more purple, but they'll also hopefully smell a little bit better. So shout out to you, E, in the chat. And anybody else who has questions, please feel free to ask. And Ms. Mercy has a question. Dr. Coco, I think, wants to field it about silica and pHing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a good question. Uh, it sort of depends on the water that you're starting with. But I think the question is, um, silica is really alkaline. It raises the pH of the solution quite significantly. Um, and should you pH adjust um, there in sort of conjunction with uh, adding silica? And she actually asked if you should pH adjust after adding silica. Um, I would suggest doing it before adding silica if, if this is the route that you're, you're taking um, or to pH adjust at the end. Um, it, it is actually better to pH adjust before adding silica, especially if you're starting with high pH water or water that, that's going to sort of swing into a high pH range with the silica. Um, silica won't dissolve as well if the pH is very high. And it's sort of a catch-22 because P silica both makes the pH high and it won't dissolve when the pH is too high. So if after adding silica, your water is like above nine, um, next time I would advise you to sort of preemptively adjust down the pH before adding the silica. Um, but if you're using clean water and low EC water, um, you shouldn't need to, the, the pH adjustment should be much less even with the silica added at the end. Um, and the advantage of doing the pH adjustment at the end is that, you know, you already know better what you need to do at that point. Um, most growers aren't able to really successfully pH adjust their water at the beginning until they gain some experience with like how much pH adjustment their water and that recipe blend is going to need. Um, but you can also split it up a little bit. If you know you're going to need to do some pH down, you could do some in the beginning before adding silica and then fine tune it with a little bit more maybe at the end. Thank you so much, doctor, for clarifying that. I got another question in the chat that I think can bring well, Brandon in. Before we uh, move off silica, I just want to do one tip. Um, because silica is kind of like, has so many special rules when you're mixing. It's got to be mixed first usually. Um, it's very, you know, alkaline, yeah. those, those kinds of things. You can mitigate that by taking it out of your feed entirely and, and doing a full year with it. And there's a lot of benefits to that as well. Um, you could you could use the high pH swing to your advantage and get a secondary benefit of being antifungal um, as a foliar feed during veg. Yeah, I don't yeah, recommend. Yeah, I wouldn't veg. do that into flower, and I still use a pretty good dose of silica into mid bloom. Um, so, but yeah, you can you can foliar very effectively with silica during veg. 
I use so, silica. Um, I use a massive amounts of silica. Silica is great too because it's an anion, which can help balance uh, cations when it falls into solution soil uh, into solution from your soil. Uh, and like he was saying, I do a foiler. I do a foiler. I have a foiler feeding program, a four day and then one day off, and it rotates products daily. And I do that all the way until day 28 of flowering. And one of those things is Agsil, Agsil 16. Good stuff, Brandon. I know um, you're also a fan of the Bavaria Bassiana. We have a question, and Matthew addressed it uh, from Cheddar Bob, who says, who uses Bavaria Bassiana and loves it? Matthew says, I certainly do. Uh, Brandon, I know, I think you've currently started to source it and you're going to be maybe selling it soon through Bokashi Earthworks, if I remember correctly, or maybe that was a past thing. Um, I'm currently consulting with one of the largest uh, grows in Hawaii and I'm helping them with biological crop steering and uh, organic cultivation practices. And part of that is helping them to make sure that they have what they need to protect their soil and keep their soil healthy. And Bouveria bassiana is one of the things that I use consistently. I mean, I inoculate my soil with Bouveria bassiana every four days. Or no, five days. Good stuff. Uh, Matthew, did you have any comments or thoughts outside of the uh, chat that you wanted to add about uh, BB? Uh, similarly, um, that uh, I also very much like Bouveria bassiana and if you are able to inoculate it in the soil uh, very com very often, I think that's a very good practice. Uh, also using it foliarly as well. The trick with Bouveria bassiana, um, and I think Brandon can attest to this as well, which is why he's sourcing the way that he is, good job, uh, is that you want spores on contact. The more spores on contact, the better um, the situation, more or less. So, so because you have, in all of the research that I've seen for Bouveria bassiana, the higher the conidial density, of an application, of course, this is laboratory or field conditions, um, usually you afford greater efficacy. Exactly. Uveria and then one, of things, one of the things you can do to increase that efficacy, especially when you're dealing with spores like this, the, what I have is a is pure spore concentrate. There, it's not, um, there's no uh, substrate carrier. And one of the things you can do to increase that efficacy is use a surfactant. That's totally true. Um, also, I wanted to ask, Brandon, do you know if they're spores or if they're conidia? Uh, conidia, I believe. Uh, what's the difference? Uh, I mean, I don't, it might not even come up uh, in the like process when you source them. I'm not sure. But technically, spores are from sexual um, reproduction and uh, conidia are from oh, asexual uh, reproduction. From the, uh, from the insect. Uh, you know what I have? I have no, no, no. From the, no, I sorry. From, I'd, have from... Ask, I'd have to ask the lab technician if they're using a carrier um, as an insect because I do know, like we've discussed before, that Bouveria bassiana needs to have uh, an insect carrier or it could possibly lose that, that gene sequence that it has to infect them. Oh yeah, the virulence factors. But I, I, was, I just meant, I just didn't know how they were fermenting them, like how they were making more of them necessarily. So, yeah, I'm not 100% sure. Soon, you know, uh, we'll be, you know, creating our own. But I don't have the SOPs for, you know, manufacturing Bouveria Bastiana right now. I want to go back just a second to something that I've butchered earlier with my uh, acronym. I don't even remember what I called it, but it's actually called CODIT, C 
compartmentalization of decay in trees. So I just wanted to put that out there if anybody wants to Google that. Um, I, I do believe that it does occur in cannabis despite it not being a tree that lives for multiple years. I think a similar process happens when you're losing a branch like that conversation we had earlier. And that's uh, there's a lot of science and stuff that discusses disease and uh, the walls that are built around damaging in plants and things like that. So it's interesting to read. I had a buddy who works in uh, sort of landscaping agriculture that uh, sent me that when he showed, looked at the plant that I had split and healed the way that it did. So it's interesting stuff to read into a little bit more for sure. We had a, another question from Cheddar Bob. Thank you again for asking these wonderful questions. And I encourage everyone in the chat to do exactly as he's doing. Just throw out as many questions as you have. If you're curious or want to hear about something, we will talk about it. This is the episode to ask the questions. Cheddar Bob says, let's talk avocado tech. I wanted to throw out something because I just had a DM this week from a grower who was having uh, success in about six out of eight of their pots with their avocado tech. They took an avocado, blended it up, up with some amendments, and they replaced it on top of the soil. Um, six out of the eight of them worked just fine because their soil was like wet enough and there was enough worms in the pot. Um, they didn't have enough worms, they think, in the one pot. But one thing I was going to suggest, like I suggested to them, is if you're watering, water like lightly over that or put a blue mat dripper or something that like a watering stake that keeps the top of the avocado skin wet because if it dries out, the worms aren't going to want to go up there. And that's part of the avocado tech from what I understand of uh, from, he says, uh, me and blue of green tank, who's the guy that I believe is uh, giving credit for creating that technique, um, have been using it for years. So I just wanted to shout out uh, Cheddar Bob in the chat. And ask, has anybody here on the panel tried the avocado tech? And what are your thoughts? I know, Spartan, you're not a fan of uh, worms in the pot. You're more of a worms in the worm bin kind of guy. As I say, I'll throw an avocado in the worm bin all day long, but I'm not going to throw it in my, in my bed. I, I don't believe in really composting too much in, in my plants. I like to do that outside and then add the finished compost. I similarly like to control the process of compost separately for biosecurity reasons. Uh, but there's nothing, to I guess, there are some things wrong with it, I'll be honest. Uh, but if you want to do that sort of a thing, you just have to make sure that that decomposition happens really quickly. You might want to like process it and maybe um, plant it like really far underground and not necessarily he, do it. He uses like a food processor or a blender and then he refills the avocado half with the amendments and like even some avocado. And within 24 hours, he'll lift it up and you'll see like literally 50 or 60 or 80 worms in there and the entire avocado is completely gone. And his theory or philosophy is that's sort of how he feeds his plants, like nutrients that he feels. So he'll do like, oh, it needs potassium. I'm gonna do a banana uh, concentration in this one. And that's how he believes with his like, uh, I believe that he uses a no-till bed regenerative style and uses it over and over. So he maybe wants to get some nutrients in that way. But again, I'm sort of with Spartan on the side of like, I think the best worm castings, and I, I'm not sure on the clarification of this, but I've heard Coot talk about it a little bit. I've heard that they're not even really worm castings right when they come out of the bin. It like takes a longer process of breaking down. So it's the difference like between worm castings and vermicompost. Vermicompost isn't broken all the way go. down where castings are. You know, pure worm castings would be just the castings that have been completely. Yeah, the ca casting most, means the the, fe the fecal matter. So that's yeah, what most stuff right. that people are buying are buying vermicompost, which is like a mix. Which, which is, is a good distinction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I just bought some. 
I believe, vermicompost. Uh, it's from Sonoma Valley Worm Farm because Clackamas Coot, shout out to him, he recommended them on his five-hour episode with uh, Aaron the Grower, which was a fucking epic. It was called like Knowledge Droppings with Coot, which is like a kind of goofy name. Yeah, it's so awesome. He was dropping knowledge bombs for sure and like tearing into some people in the industry, but also giving some really good secrets. And my local place that I got uh, my worm castings from for a long time, uh, I really loved. It was like what I consider like my secret ingredient in my soil recipe that like kicks up the flavor, just the extra notch. And it provides a lot of calcium and good uh, microbial life and things like that. So I love worm castings or, or vermicompost, whatever they actually are that I'm getting. Yeah. Cause I don't know what's, the technical. What's the differences between the two. Is it the microbial life on it? Is it the yeah, availability was, of the nutrients what's the difference it's going to be both both of those things on top of that there's going to be nutrient differences you know some in a vermicompost you're going to find compost too which is going to be you know half broken down material that it could be it could be anything but uh where the worm casting you know they're going to always contain like calcium you know it's going to have some calcium because that gets they're coated in calcium from the from the worm as they as it gets excreted um, the glomulin that the worm kind of leaves behind the slime, whatever it's called, that stuff has uh, got a lot of calcium in it. So that's another kind of a hidden benefit of castings is that calcium that it brings. That's one of the benefits I definitely enjoy from it. I, I think it's a great input into soil. If you're an organic grower, even if you're a synthetic grower, like people that call themselves synganic, I see oftentimes have like really great flavor and, and great results from using castings. It just seems to even in cocoa, like I see a lot of people that are like, oh, I just throw X amount of worm castings in my cocoa, even though they're using nutrients and all this other stuff. They just always do that by sort of practice. So very interesting uh, input. I had a question from Sour Diesel Tangy, who is a regular. He's actually a wrench, one of our moderators in the chat. Sour Diesel Tangy asks, kelp as an additional nutrients. Any thoughts on using kelp with a salt-based nutrient regime? I know, Brandon, I think you mentioned recently that you've moved away from anything basically from the sea or most things from the sea lately. Uh, yeah, that's right. So kelp is good, but the problem is most people are vastly over applying top dressed uh, minerals and then they're mixing a lot of different things together. And so they're over applying things and then you don't have proper balance in the soil um, from what I, so from. I've had to kind of reevaluate the way I apply the science into a living uh, modified growing mix because although some of the things are applicable, things kind of uh, work differently, especially when you're scaling and then when you're actually looking at the tests. Um, I have a really, really healthy soil and the amount of minerals that I top dress or, you know, things like uh, amino nitrogen. Um, I'm maybe doing a hundred milliliters for a 10 gallon pot once a month. So the amount of nutrients that are being applied to, uh, these living soil systems is usually just so massive. And so typically what you see is, uh, you see just lockout, you know, you'll see things fluctuate too much you'll see too uh really high sodium and chloride levels oftentimes you'll see stacking right uh kind of like what the jungle boys were talking about with uh their crop steering how they're stacking their uh their ec in these medias the same thing kind of happens in soil systems especially if you're not using clean water so what happens over time is the uh the combination of high sodium uh amendments along with high sodium water and high chloride water it starts to just 
shut things like iron, mag, uh, magnesium, cop, uh, uh, calcium. It shuts these things down, and then your plant's not able to acquire them. So, for me, the benefits that like kelp could possibly bring, as far as a lot of the uh, biological, you know, elements, the uh, mi- like the mineral inputs, and then some of the uh, the plant hormones. I'm really relying. I'm not really relying on those as much as I'm relying on the you know having a super healthy balanced fertile soil that has maximum gas water and air exchange and then um and then uh like really good genetics um but yeah the the the, the problem is that those things are are often just over applied just like any of those inputs bone meal uh oyster shell a lot of things are just you can use them and i'm not saying you can't use them because it's i mean i've used them with success plenty of times but when i'm when i actually look at the science and i'm looking at the data a lot of it's just unnecessary been speaking way there is sodium levels you really gotta watch sodium levels when people like brandon said people like to go crazy with kelp Um, the more kelp you add the more salt you're also adding and uh i think in the question they said what about kelp with salt systems sure but again watch your sodium levels, make sure you're, you know, the source of your kelp and you know that it doesn't have, you know, high levels of salt or sodium in the product. And, and think about it like this. If someone's going to say, Hey, I'm going to make a top dress for my flowering plants because you know, there are two weeks in a flower and want to have a strong thing. And they mix up, you know, half cup of kelp, half cup of alfalfa, half cup of uh, cow foss, you know, a bunch of oyster shell, some insect frass, some neem meal, right? And so they have essentially added like five, 600 milliliters, maybe even more of amendments onto what, maybe a 10, 15 or smaller size pot or bed. And it's like, dude, they just did six, seven, who knows how much times more than the soil would probably actually need. I don't know if this is apropos of much, but kelp is, I mean, one of the main benefits of using kelp is it promotes rapid growth. Um, cytokinin it sort of acts as a, as a growth hormone within other plants. Um, and it's always been sort of one of the fascinating things to me that there are a couple of plants out there that have sort of peculiar characteristics. And kelp is the plant that grows the fastest. I mean, it can grow like two feet a day or something or, or more than that. Um, and it's just funny that we can sort of grind it up and feed it to other plants and they will take on some of those characteristics. Um, it seems like an in, in instance of sort of like uh, magical practices in gardening. Um, and yucca is the other one that, that's like that. Yucca has some peculiar properties. It's it's really um, resistant to, to extreme temperatures and to swings in temperatures, for example. And when you give yucca to other plants, they take on some of those properties. Um, I've just always sort of been fascinated with that. So I wanted to throw that into the kelp conversation. Oh, hey, you know, one of the things that I wanted to, to mention too was 
when I start looking at like the benefits that I get from other inputs, other plant inputs, things like alfalfa for the tricantinol, the kelp for the cytokinin, things like sprouted seed teas for amino acids. So all of these things are actually biosynthesized by the plant, but a lot of the time the plant is using its energy um, and it's using up all those stored uh, carbohydrates and to, you know, push those into the soil to adjust for the things that it needs. So, you know, if you have a really healthy uh, fertile soil that's in balance and that plant isn't, is not going to have to, ex is not going to have to release as much as those, those stored products that it, you know, acquired through photosynthesis to balance out this system underneath it. And so it will have more of that potential energy to, to biosynthesize all of the things that it needs. We have a question for Kyle in the chat. Uh, it says, any experience on the panel with ethylene spray for plants that tend to make male parts? I'm assuming they're talking about female plants that tend to make male parts, aka monoecious plants. I guess Kyle is not here. Keeper making bananas. I'm using Armor SI for the first grow. Um, this time I've been reading that people sometimes pH down to seven before adding it or any newts. I don't know if that's the same question or not. It looks like they might've gotten mixed, sorry. So Kyle, do you have any thoughts on ethylene for preventing plants from basically hermiting? I kind of have an idea what you think. Uh, I'm not too sure. Um, so it's kind of an interesting question. Um, I guess to answer specifically now, I mean, I've never used it to not harm, but I'm sure, um, I'm sure it's probably a thing. You know, I, I haven't really experienced uh, stuff with that. I do know a guy that, uh, to comment on that, somebody, uh, what's that, you know, that stuff that they put, you know, that when you buy roses or flowers, they have that little powder to keep them alive. But I knew a guy that, uh, basically put them in large bowls inside of a tent and, he claimed that 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 worked. So I don't, I don't know for sure. Interesting. I personally wouldn't want a plant that I have to go through the effort of pumping ethylene gas into the grow room that I'm probably <laughs> trying to ventilate. Uh, I'd rather just get a plant that is sexually stable and not monoecious. It's dioecious where the female plant is just a female plant and the male plants are separate. So, and I'm not sure that I've heard of this ethylene gas treatment for preventing hermaphrodism. Um, uh, I've heard of uh, ethylene gas used for ripening fruit. Like typically, yeah, that's what it is. In agricultural, they'll, they'll take fruit that's not ripe, so they can ship it like long distances, and then they'll introduce ethylene gas to start the ripening process. That's you know, what it is. It's a ripening um, agent primarily. A lot of fruits put off their own ethylene yeah. gas. Composing. Yeah, but if you look it's, into it's reversal, the reason that we have the expression "one bad apple ruins the whole bunch," because as apples start to ripen, they start to produce ethylene gas, which then causes apples around them to ripen, um, and it sets off a train sort of reaction. We're talking about cannabis, though, and cannabis. What yep. determines whether a plant will go intersex or monoecious is yep. ethylene production. A it's definitely plant an active biological gas. I mean, and plants use it for sort of other purposes, and it's used in in sort of uh, industry for other purposes as well. I've just never heard that it has an effect on suppressing hermaphrodism. Just to finish your point though, the, the process of a reversal, usually using silver thiosulfate, commonly known as STS, is used to suppress ethylene production within the plant to force a female plant to create male reproductive parts, okay. aka monoecious. Okay. Good. Yep. 
I so just want to point out saying that the ethylene gas is or that the presence of ethylene may always be suppressing the the expression of male genetics uh, or of male sex organs on a plant. Um, and that maybe it's sort of lack of abundance is one of the reasons that plants go herm in the first place. That is the claim from some people that say, oh, you see feminized seeds often have issues with hermaphrodism. Some people say that's because they didn't test the offspring. Kyle Breeder has feminized seeds that don't tend to have hermes. So maybe there is some proof to that claim. But other people theorize, like if you go to S1, S2, S3, where the plant has been self generation after generation, maybe it begins to have issues with its own ethylene production. So they would try and pump ethylene into the room. Or I've even heard of a product like a foliar spray that claims it makes more it's something from Optic Foyer, I believe. Yeah, it's called Switch. That's oh, what Switch. I was going to point out. They have a commercial product. Yeah. They changed the name for labeling purposes, but yeah. I don't remember what they changed it to, but yeah, it was originally called Switch, and it blocked ethylene, I believe. And that's what uh, stopped your plants. And that's from... what made them go harm. No, it stopped them from harm. I mean, you could stop them in their tracks. So uh, it probably forced what... ethylene production is what was happening, maybe. I would imagine. Could I, I could be wrong, but it was that, a it was some kind of a hormone or something that you you sprayed it like three times or something on the plant in the first stage of flower, and it would prevent them from going hermaphrodite on you. And I tested that on a plant that was a known hermaphrodite, and it worked. But I'm not willing to spray my plants every time like that. Yeah. Flower, yeah, and investing in that solution. So like, okay, now I want to keep this plant for the rest of my life. Now I'm gonna to have to buy that solution for the rest of my life and spray it on every single time I go into flower. And it's like I'd rather just hunt for a more stable plant that's not going to reverse on me at the first sign of stress or lack of but i want to say it was a hormone i don't remember the name of it i don't have it anymore so i couldn't get the bottle and tell you but i believe it was a hormone of some sort ethylene for plants is like estrogen for girls so like if you think estrogen female ethylene female for the cannabis plant mr soul the breeder of cinderella 99 the breeder for brothers grim genetics has gone very deep into this. If you want to listen to more about it, check out The Dude Grows, where he talks about uh, using silver thiosulfate to make what he calls female seeds, not feminized, because he believes that it's truly just passing an X and an X, and when done properly, you can have uh, female seeds without large amounts of uh, monoecious or hermaphrodism, as it's commonly known in our community. And I think Kyle is also a good example. Um, the one line that he had any issues with, he didn't release. And the other lines from what I've been seeing haven't had any issues. So shout out to Kyle for putting that work in and uh, making us all more aware because this is definitely a topic that's newer. There was a lot of different ways of feminizing seeds in the past. People used to use rotalization where they light a lighter next to the plant to make it stress out or um, run it way, way past its time, the harvest date. And many plants, when you push them past their harvest date, will throw a banana or two and you can collect that pollen and use it to breed with, which Brandon used to make the limerilla, which is a pretty fucking epic cultivar, if I do say so myself, having consumed it and looked at the test results. It's one of the most outrageous plants I've ever seen on paper and in person. The, uh, oh, uh, I just lost my train of thought. We're talking about rotalization? Or oh, just yeah, like yeah, late uh, pollen? So I actually, a lot of, again, dude, a lot of like the best varieties in the world came from herms or from like that type of, uh, that type of uh, bag seed and stuff. Um, we did the Afghani bull rider down in San Diego, and that was a, a bull rider that got pollinated by a, a pure Afghan that hermed, and the weed was fired. But it was because of that. Like my my the dudes out taught me. They explained to me like what happened and how you could do this. So um, 
I did that a bunch of times back in the day. That's how I did all my breeding. I didn't e even start using males until probably uh, until a couple years ago. I did all feminized rototilled seeds, rototillization. I'm interested and because like not everything was perfect, but you know, you just just like you know, I had better success rate. I mean, every once in a while I'd have herms, but what you do is you just don't keep those. You just throw them out and don't work with them. Shout out to Chef OMJ in the past. He talked about he grew out the dark ghost train haze that like seven out of eight people in the grow off, uh, grow along with cocoa for cannabis did, had herms, and he grew out some of the bag seeds from that herm, and only like 50% of them had herms in the offspring. So at least half of them were ended up being really fire, and he ended up liking it. But I think um, this sort of man. I still have se those seeds. What should I do with those seeds? I got to put this up for a community vote at some point because, like, yeah, the ones that he got out of that that turned out well were absolutely fire. Um, and then the other ones are are weak little herms. You grow those anyways? I think it's a good question because it leads perfectly into our next question, which is, what right. does the panel think is the next big thing? What we are going to see in crosses next, like the next GSC GG4. And I want to just go back a little deeper into the history because both of those, like Brandon talked about, were bag seed from Hermie plants. And I want to talk about Chem 91, which is probably one of the earliest Hermes that's a legendary plant, followed by <clears throat> OG Kush, which is another plant that came from bag seed, as well as Triangle Kush. So just throwing out that those are some of the most legendary cultivars in the cannabis history. Um, maybe there is something to like Hermes carrying some really fire genetics, but what does the panel think is going to be the next fire thing? And what would you do if you had some seeds like Doc um, that may have Hermes, but may also be like super potentially amazing? I'd say uh, hemp for livestock feed. I know that's not where you were going with this, but I think that would be one of the next big things in cannabis generally. I think that you're absolutely correct in that. And I think that there are a few really, really big people doing a really good job with that. Oregon CBD being one of them. Um, just hemp breeding in general, they're doing an absolutely I was also going to say triploidy for the exact same reason because of their research, so. Yeah, but personally, I'm a little uh, weird about like colchicine and breeding and mutagens and things like that, but they're being used. I mean, Swiss X has the radiation 0.0% THC hemp plant that can be grown in the Bahamas and stuff, so. There's a lot of interesting things happening in that side of um, cannabis breeding. Uh, Spartan Grown, what do you think will be the next big cannabis cultivar? Maybe you could be growing it right now at, at Mittencanico, or maybe it's something that you're looking forward to. I think that's uh, it's a mind trap you shouldn't put yourself in. I don't think you should concentrate on what the next big thing is. I think you should concentrate on being a better grower and, and just do that. Stop competing with everybody else and looking at everybody else and compete with yourself, and that's how you become a better grower. I mean, there's literally probably a million strains out there now. They all could be good if, you, if you're a good grower. But you could get the very best cultivar out there and be a bad grower, and it won't be a good result. So I think that's something that, yeah, I mean, that's a good stone thought, and everybody could just throw a dart and say, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. But in the end, it doesn't matter. It's about the grower. That's what it's about. I do agree with the sentiment. I kind of disagree. I kind grower of matters a lot. Because you know, I know that some like cuts, dude, have made people's careers. You know what I mean? So like, but in this day and age, cuts can be had no problem, dude. It's not like they're difficult to get anymore. But it's yeah, difficult I mean, to find a good grower sometimes. Well, a lot more I, difficult I, to find a grower than a good cut. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. and usually, you know, yeah. Sorry. I, I was just gonna say, you know, I uh, 
I think that obviously the farmer is really important, but like they genetics, dude, like if you can get like, if you can do massive hunts, right. If you can go and select out of thousands of varieties and pick unique characteristics, things that are completely different and that are that have all the characteristics that you're really looking for. Those are the, the things that can change like a company's projection, you know, their profit everything you know it's technically called a consistent competitive advantage so if you pop seeds you have something over your competitors in a commercial market uh, on top of being a better cultivator mm. so like granted i think spartan grown and mitten canico are better cultivators than the other people in michigan but if you open mitten canico 2.0 i wouldn't expect you guys to be popping like mexican bag seed i think you're going to be yeah. you know growing stuff that is like the Han Solo burger. One thing that I think is going to be the next big thing is Donnie burger, which is GMO cross to Han Solo burger. Han Solo burger is a cross of GMO cross the Larry OG F8 from a breeder named uh, Skunk House Genetics, also known as Skunk it's, Master Flex. He found the GMO. It's the market that's going to dictate, like, it's the market. People, it depends on what your goal is. If you're that's a commercial exactly, operation, that's what Tom, Tom gonna, I was going to say there's marketing sells yeah, Well, that's but, true. But Great that's weed it, sells, and Donnie burger is to, that. If everybody wants to buy Donnie Burger, then everybody's going to be growing a Donnie Burger. And eventually you know it'll fall saying? off like Blue Dream and, then, and like all the other shit, like GG4. Right, it gets overexposed. But that's but my it, point, though, is the, the whole reason all that whole cycle works is because it's the marketing. The people are, it doesn't, you insert whatever name, you know, Donnie Burger. You know, when you said everybody's going to start smoking Donnie, no, everybody's going to smoke stuff called Donnie Burger. They're not out smoking Donnie Burger. And half of them are going to hate it and half of them are going to shit on the strain. And then nobody's going to buy it anymore because the hype's died but they didn't really even sample it to begin with. So, and like really until we have a system that you get what it says that you're getting, it's all just fucking names that people are throwing out there that say they're this or that, you know what I mean? That's why I really just say if it's grown well, that's really the most important thing. But more so we're going to have legal markets where like you can go and say, this is bought from a mitten canico bag. I have pretty good confidence that this is sour garlic cookies and that you guys yeah. cultivated it well. And that yeah, it's clean. I, work, I work in the industry and I could a hundred percent walk into mitten canico and grab a thing labeled uh, whatever Donnie burger and working within metric, make that into whatever the hell I want to call it. Legitimately. I can do that. So, I mean, that's, that doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? The names are just, that's all they are is just names. You got to, the test results will tell you what the cannabinoids are and all that, all that, but we're not doing DNA sampling on this stuff. I agree with that, but I think most people that are reputable within the legal market are going to try their best to source good cuts, have the actual proper names and lineages of those plants so that their customers and clients and patients can have consistency. Like you guys grow from clone, not from seed because you want the consistency of that genetic. Not because but we have grown from seed too. The name of the genetic, right? But when you grow from seed, you guys make a mother, and then you take cuts of it, and then you want the consistency. Right. Of the genetics. Yes. The genetics yes. is important. And what I'm gonna say is, Donnie Burger is some knock your dick in the dirt weed. That's some fucking dank. And I don't care who the fuck you are. Anybody who tries some well-grown Donnie Burger is gonna love that shit. In my how does it yield, Jack? It's it's okay. It's a average to good, I would say. It's a nine weeker though. As far as GMO crosses, there are some really good nine week phenos. And a lot of GMO crosses are like 11, 12 week plants. So that puts it into a more commercial production standpoint yeah. where it can actually finish and have like be done at nine. Not like, oh, we can take it at nine because it looks good. Like, well, I'm doing another hunt right now too. I always just uh, do my own thing 
you know, but I do have some old seeds that I'm popping. I popped all the I old sangria stuff. I popped some TGA testers. I have some some old seeds from Humboldt CSI. I have a Chem 4 and a Chem 91 times Snow Lotus that are old. That are just I think popped. if you find killer high yielding or good yielding strains, you should just save the cut. Eventually it'll come around again. If it's good, if it's really good, the, you know, if it's good, just keep it. You don't have to produce tons of it all the time, but just keep that cut in case it comes back around. Like, like I bet you a lot of strains will. Sour so, diesel and shit, like coming back into the market. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I did a pheno hunt and then I re-ran most of the cuts again. I just didn't run any. I, ran, I selected all the stuff that I was like, oh, I'd grow this again. And I did just to make my final selection from clone. And then from that batch, I ended up with, uh, I think I have eight plants out of that original. Like um, it, it was like 100 and it was uh, like 160 something plants female plants from like 300 and something seeds. So Brandon, I know um, I love the Lime Marilla and, and I know Matthew Gates on the panel also enjoys it himself. Has it picked up the steam you would expect in the Oklahoma market? Has it been a pretty big seller or popular thing in the stores or is it kind of similar to the others like velvet ropes or other stuff that you've gotten from breeders? Um, I mean, we sell out of all, all of our weed, so well there you go good i was gonna to jump have. in and say i just kept my mouth shut but i was like man you could, if you have tested weed that's all you need <laughs> that, that's the only requirement right now in the market um so there's the here's the thing right um when i first got out here there was no market for my weed because nobody's seen that quality so it was actually difficult to sell because people didn't know how to price it um and now there's a little more competition as far as like people, other uh, companies that are putting out good quality. So that market has shifted from, okay, now there's this market and there's this market. So we operate in the higher market. Um, and the thing is too, there's not anybody that I know of doing at scale, full spectrum lighting with living soil. And then also being able to pull the numbers that um, I'm able to do. So uh, we're getting a lot of distribution. Again, we brought in my friend Hopper, who's the manager from the Cottonmouth Kings, and he's just a networking wizard. He's a people person. I'm not really a super people person. Like, you know, if you're on my territory and you come into the garden, then then cool. But I don't like going to other people's turf because then it just becomes a negotiation and shit, and I don't want to have to deal with that. So, you know, if a dispensary owner or something like that wants to come into the facility. I'm like, you can come in, you know, I'll give you a tour and we can chop it up. And usually in those types of cases, there's no negotiations at the end of it. It's just like, this is what this is. And then like, cool, solid. We're stoked. Kyle Breeder, you're showing off some plants over there. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us what we're looking at and what you think will be the next big thing in the market. Oh, that looks like Limerilla. Uh Sorry if it's a little loud, it's the fans. Uh, yeah, no, this is... Uh... This is New England Rye Candy by, by Per Plant Violet. It looks really good. Get some of that. Some raw, this is rock candy, this is the mother. The, the lighting's kind of, these LED lights give like off like a yellow hue, so it doesn't really look all that well, but. If you use polarized sunglasses, or you can even get like a little clip up thing, it actually corrects that, um, a decent amount at least. Maybe not perfect, but even just like cheap 
seven dollar pair off Amazon. Just type polarized sunglasses, and they end up. Oh, yeah, I usually well. do that. Do you got? Do you have that Limorilla in that room, Kyle? Uh, no, but I do have it uh, right here. Love to see it. One sec, boys. No worries. Um, do you have any thoughts on maybe something uh, that you read yourself, or something that you've seen gaining popularity that you think might make the next sort of uh, legacy cut mark, where it will be with the uh, GSC, GG4, Cam, OG Kush, and uh, things like that in history? Uh, it's hard to say, man. I mean, this, everyone's got good stuff nowadays. I mean, some some are better than others for sure. But this is the Limarilla, Brendan. Oh yeah, it looks like it definitely. It's got that same structure. How's it smell? Oh, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, this is what I just built over the weekend. So I basically put in some, uh, I bought 30 pound test fishing line and I just anchored them into the walls. <laughs> I used to do very similar, very similar. But, um, I redid yeah. my, I redid my tent too. I used uh, metal bailing wire. Nothing Dr. worse than one of those lines fall. Oh, bailing wire, you were saying, the American one? Yeah, metal bailing wire. Good tip. Um, the American one, since you just piped in there, um, what do you think will be the next thing? Are you, are you on Spartan Grown's tip that it's more just the cultivator? That's what matters most. Uh, no, there's probably going to be a couple names that'll uh, get popular. But, you know, it's hard to... Uh, to dictate, I heard I've been. There's a lot of lemon running around. I think I think the people are going to get sick of lemon, though. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I, uh, I was I don't know where I was reading it, but everybody's like, there's lemon everywhere. That's been around for a long time. Like for me, I'm not really looking for stuff that I've come across a bunch, and I've come across a bunch of citrus, whether it's lemon, uh, whether it's lime, whether it's grapefruit. But then there are people out there that are like begging for that stuff, and uh, they've never had it at all. So. I guess there's sort of a market for everything. It just depends on like if you're getting into the market to make and sell seeds, which you can sell all around the U.S. or even internationally if you're more bold, um, or if you're getting into the market for just actually like you know growing and selling flour, where people are going to be buying and consuming that. Um, it really your ultimate end goal will dictate what you choose to grow for sure. And most of us here are just growing for our own heads and homegrown. So I'm always excited to see what people think is going to be the next big thing. Um, it's fun to sample a whole bunch of new stuff and see how it compares to the old stuff. I still think White Widow stands up. I still think AK-47 and uh, Triangle, Triangle Kush, OG Kush, um, Super Silver Haze, some of these older cultivars or strains, whatever you want to call them, I think very much as far as potency, flavor, and effect can stand with the best stuff of today. And it just might not have the same bag appeal or the name and marketing to sell right now but i even think it's got the same bag appeal in a lot of cases i think it just doesn't have it's not the latest modality it's not the it's the same reason that you know fashion changes on a seasonal basis um there is something just to to the fad of different strains um and like we, we talked about, you know, sometimes the, the strains or the labels that they're sold under or whatever really don't live up to, to some of the reputations. Um, I kind of wanted to agree with what Spartan had said earlier. Um, I think most growers can improve more by, I mean, unless you're growing bag seed or unless you're growing like some clone hand-me-down from, you know, 
decades ago or something where you, I mean, unless you're growing bad genetics, um, I think there is certainly a, a, an argument for growing good genetics, but most of us probably are starting with pretty good genetics. And I think that the, rather than trying to find the answer by changing genetics, I, I think most growers will improve their grows more by improving their grow methods or their dry and cure or some other aspect of their grow um, or their equipment or, or something along those lines. Um, I think people are looking for like the holy grail of like the perfect seed that grows the perfect buds and they don't have to change anything else that, that they're doing. I don't think that that is really realistic. I think you can get amazing results with all sorts of different strains too, but certainly- I think people should grow what they like personally and they'll yep. do better in general, right? Yeah. But when I think about like the, the sort of what the future, what's going to be big in the future, I still can't sort of stop thinking about autoflowering cannabis encroaching on um, different elements that we've traditionally held pretty tightly in photo period plants. Um, I, I definitely see that trend continuing uh, both in commercial and in home cultivation. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the thrust of the direction I'm, I'm seeing in the market. Matthew, do you have any thoughts on this as a just consumer in general or from a IPM perspective? Do you have any idea of what you think might be, let's say 2021 comes rolling around. What do you expect to see in a lot of the, uh, grow rooms, greenhouses, outdoor facilities, things like that? Uh, is there any cultivar that you would expect or more kind of like last week where it's just, there's not enough research? In in regards to like what's going to be the next most popular, we were talking about like Gorilla Glue Four, um, Girl Scout cookies, and things that have sort of like exploded in popularity. Do you see any? Uh, do you have any predictions? I guess it doesn't have to be from a place of like this is deeply researched and has IPM uh, backing behind it. I'm just curious more your thought on um, what you think might be the next one. Well, I do think that. Um... I think that focusing on, in the same way that a lot of other agricultural um, crops are being focused on, uh, focusing on on like traits, like traits that are very overt and also resistance traits and that sort of a thing are, are going to be more huge than ever. And it's kind of happening during, in my opinion, sort of a renaissance in the sort of uh, sort of genome and microbiome um, disciplines where we're able to kind of marry together like like phenotypes and genotypes and, and, the, and the various permutations that you can get when you combine various genes, but also understanding what a couple of genes do together or what one gene does if you knock it out or if it doesn't happen because of a mutation or something like this. Um, and then using all that information to essentially breed for um, particular expressions that you want that will have things like you know maybe a consistently greater uh, um, uh, node creation or maybe it branches out a lot more having these sort of traits kind of um, figured out and understood and then having those inform breeding um, avenues I think that's going to become a lot more maybe not in the ne very next year but I think that that's already being worked on now and I think that more of that will come Changing up a, l a little bit, but staying in the IPM realm, we have a question that says, could I use lab lactic acid, uh, I don't know what the B is, bacteria? Um, but 
that has been mixed 50-50 with brown sugar to foliar spray a plant with powdery mildew? Matthew. You could do that. I don't have a lot of experience doing that personally. I'm not sure that I would trust that that would work with powdery mildew every single time or even at all. But uh, Brandon, have you had experience with that? Well, there's certain lactic acid bacteria, or I should say bacillus species of bacteria that are very effective against powdery mildew. Bacillus subtilis is one of those. Um, however, homemade but lactobacillus? Lab, yeah, homemade yeah, lab, lab with 50-50 mixed with brown sugar for foliar spray. They're talking about basically making like a homemade EM minus the photosynthetic bacteria and the yeast. Um, it could, you know, if you have active enough active spore populations and they're, and they're creating that lactic acid, what it does, it's an organic acid that drops the surface of the phylosphere to a low pH to where the uh, powdery mildew can't poten potentially can't, you know, live in that same space. So one of the things about the bacillus species is they actually uh, have the ability to, you know, select out competition because they compete for the same resources. Um, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't use homemade labs as just like a, that's it. Like, oh, I'm going to hit this with, and my PM's going to be gone. Because it might be somewhat effective, but you might have issues. I just, it's not something that I regularly do. I think that we've definitely covered that one thoroughly enough. I wanted to pass it to Spartan Grow next. Uh, while he hits that, I'll say it sounds sort of like a KNF type of thing with the brown sugar. A lot of the KNF stuff uses brown sugar in their mixes. But Spartan Grown, I had a question from Purple Thumb OG. Does anyone know if deer poop would be good and safe to add to a compost pile? I mean, if it's a thermophilic compost pile, pretty much anything is safe unless you have radioactive or something because you're going to get temperatures pretty high. So, yeah, I would say if you're using a, a compost pile outside that you're turning and you're getting up to the right temperature, yes, it would be fine. It would probably be good. I would think the same thing as well. Um, they're typically pretty healthy animals and they eat a pretty natural diet. And um, even just like growing up in Ohio, I've seen lots of deer shit playing paintball. And it looks like a lot of other inputs that we use in gardening, like rabbit shit and other things like that. So I'd imagine it has a lot of those same similar benefits, like high I mean, nitrogen and things like that. You could even gather it up, throw it in a, uh, like a, a smart pot or a fabric bag and uh, throw some worms in there, man. You could do it that way too. Yep, I think that would work. Uh, like bunny farms for meat, they usually just have worms underneath the bunnies where they're pooping, and the worms take care of the rabbit poo, and they turn it into like a basically modified vermicompost that a lot of people end up using for gardening. Um, another question we had, um, just trying to go through sort of rapid fire a little bit because I posted a few into the chat, so I'd be able to pull them from the live chat and not miss them in the scrolling. But they said building a grow space with a window AC around a window AC with no other intake, would I need to supplement CO2? So that type of question, um, I didn't write down the name of who actually asked it, but to that listener and to anybody else who's asking questions, those questions are very regionally specific to yourself. If you live in Alaska, it's gonna be a lot different than if you live in Arizona. And so I would say, sort of look at your own climate, um, general parameters that I think are safe for plants to grow in happily. Um, with LEDs, for example, I think that if you can keep it under 90 degrees at your very, very hottest, but ideally like 82 to 85 in the room, I think is a good high end of your temperature and on the low ends, um, anywhere in the 70s, but uh, it can get down to 60. I think it'll slow things down a little bit, but as far as like 
needing to supplement CO2, the hotter it gets, the better plants can handle things if they have access to a little bit more CO2. So like instead of 80, 82, 85 might be fine, but even to a point like the Chandra et al study um, looked at using even like proper levels of CO2. And after a certain point, I think it's like 95 degrees, no matter what CO2 level your plants are, um, they just seem to not be very happy and the yield suffers dramatically. And there's other issues that start to affect the, the regulation of sort of the enzymes and the hormones that are required for photosynthesis at extremely high temperatures that can't be sort of overcome just by additional carbon dioxide. Um, my question would be about sort of airflow through this space. You mentioned um, a window AC unit being the only intake. I'm wondering if air is being exhausted from the grow space. Um, and if it they're is from Oklahoma too, they said in chat just now, they updated the question, they're from Oklahoma. So there's your environment. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would say it probably might, just looking at Brandon's setup where he's got like a portable AC in a tent within yeah, another tent, a, piping that cold air. My suggestion is don't use a window AC unit to the outside because one, you're gonna get light leaks too. Um, if it's really cold out, which we run into in Michigan, they don't work with the dam. You're better off to build like a wall or have it go through the wall to an interior space and then vent that space from the heat that it's kicking out, something like that. Because if you have it pulling in outside air, and the biggest thing is going to be your, your light leaks because the light will come in through the back vents and, and shine into your room. Pest issues. And also, if you do what you're talking about, where you build a, like a half wall or split that room up into two and you set the AC in and you have a long room, then you can do what Doc was sort of alluding to just a little bit ago, where are they going to be exhausting and intaking? And when you do that uh, sub wall, you allow yourself to exhaust within your own home versus pumping stuff out into your environment. I don't know what your right. neighbors are like, but having an AC is not going to be carbon filtered. So when that's exhausting, it's going to be an unfiltered air source that's kicking out of your garage. Right. And um, so well, having the ability- sort of, the, the, Carbon dioxide needs to come from somewhere. So either there needs to be an intake of fresh air and in a, a grow space that is exhausted, Usually the exhaust fan creates enough pressure, although there's certainly, you know, active intake setups, um, that it will be pulling air in all the time. Now, it sounded to me that this grower is, has like an AC unit as their active air intake. Um, and some of, I mean, if there is no other active air intake or if it's not being exhausted, yeah, you need to supplement the carbon dioxide in that space because carbon dioxide needs to come from somewhere and the plants will sort of use it up. Um, but it, it definitely needs sort of more skin around the question in terms of what, how the airflow is working through the space. I totally agree. Um, I can't remember the name of that user, Spartan. Did you happen to catch who it was? It was Mama Loss. Mama Loss, yes. Yep, 710. She asked another question. If it is a female, I don't mean to assume gender based on the title. But um, they asked another question about uh, following up. They were saying, I would like to know the panel's thoughts on Sea of Green, Grow, and Full Organics. Pot size, veg time, starting with pots and building up to a raised bed indoors. Uh, and they're shooting for hopefully about 1.5 plants per square foot is what they wrote in their initial question. So, uh, Brandon, I guess I could pass this one to you first because I think you're one that I know who's currently, or you've grown in, in beds in the past, if I remember correctly. Uh, nope. 
I haven't done beds, actually. I've never grown in beds. I am going to be growing in grassroot fabric pots that are about 90 feet long and four feet wide here very soon. Um, it's not really any different than what I'm doing right now. It's just a larger volume of soil. Do you think the plant spacing that they suggested, 1.5 square foot per plant, is enough, or do you think that's too small? It sounded like they wanted to see it green one cola. Square foot, right? Or one, yeah, 1. 1.5 plants per square foot. It depends on what size your plant is and what your goal is, because you could plant a plant on like two foot centers. They said the goal was see a green. They're going for a small plant. Yeah, single colas. It depends on your cultivar as well, because some cultivars will just straight. If you're going to see a green and put a clone in there, bed it for a week and then flip, it's going to, some of them will create one spear, yeah. right? Which means you need you the right strain. Some of them are going to branch out, which means they're, it's, it's all, it's like, it's not a, it's not a clear question, right? Because there's so many, there's multiple factors that you have to take in, you know, I, I the would, space, yeah. how big you're going to get your plants, what variety, how, how they flower. I would just offer that one and a half plants per square foot is a pretty dense SOG, but it's sort of within the range of what a SOG would be. We, we define a SOG as anything above one plant per square foot. Um, so if you have lower density than one plant per square foot, then we wouldn't consider that a, a sea of green. Um, one and a half plants per square foot is sort of at the other end of, of what you would do and we would recommend small containers and um you know with the super was this an amended super soil or is this a, just an organic they're talking about starting they asked actually basically yeah if you were oh. going to do this what size pots would you be going in like uh veg time like opposite starting pot veg time size. would be a week <laughs> yeah very very short veg time and that's what i was going to get to is if and i do think they actually meant about 1.5 square feet per plant because that's how they ordered it and when they wrote it. So I think okay. that they're assuming they have that is a, this that's a much lower density actually. Um, that's sort of just under the what we would consider to be a, a real sog. And that you know a plant for every one and a half square feet. Um, what is that's like? Is that 12 plants in a four by four tent? Um, no, it's like 10 plants in a four by four tent. Um, it's still a, a, a lot of plants, but you can veg the plants for two or three weeks at that point. You could even top the plants or you could do a little bit more LST. Um, we really define a, a SOG to be something where really quick veg time, untrained plants, usually all um, daughter clones of the same mother for consistency. Um, and yeah, it's like go to 12, 12 really quickly. And usually, so I would say, I mean, if you're hell bent on organic, I would, uh, go for maybe, I don't, I can't believe I'm suggesting this, but I would, uh, I would look into some organic, organically chelated nutrients and just feed with bottles, man. That's cause I don't, with that little volume for your root ball in, in, in a organic situation, man, I, I think you're going to have some nutrient issues. Check out two. Well, they said they were planning into beds then, didn't they? They're yeah, really... with, with beds, I think you can't actually get away with it. I've seen a few people if you do a short enough veg. Turnaround. I mean, you're going to, I mean, how are you going to, how are you going to turn that around and get another crop in there? Without I'm not even feeding. addressing that part. Yeah, I was just trying to have, figure out how we could uh, throw a shit ton the of uh, that we were top given. dress and reamend, I guess. But it's not going to be a fun or easy process at the end. 
Yeah, I would. I mean, if you want to, that's the only thing I would say. My suggestion would be if that's what you want to do, I would look into chelated organics, like like a bottle, like nectar for the gods, or that's and the one that between rounds. I mean, that's a whole different process than the actual growth. So, like, I don't know for sure. I would also say, oh, my internet connection is unstable. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, you just caught I heard all you up. You on the rapid speak thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah that I'm was sure. pretty cool. I thought it was two times for a second. Yeah, I man. was I was pulling my best Twista impersonation. It just I was talking really fast like this. I don't know. I think that was going fast. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's cool. But yeah, Tuna Room on Instagram. It's like Tuna with a bunch of A's because I think they've had their account removed a few times. And there's like a small home grower Tuna Room, but then there's like a commercial producer Tuna Room. And their setup looks so fucking beautiful. It's like three beds. There's a bed on the left, a bed on the back wall, and a bed on the right. And you've got your walk path in the center. That's like where they've got like some AC or DHU units. And then just sea of green of just beautiful ass plants all over. I should probably like pull it up and screen share if I was a good host, but uh, not happening this week. I'm looking at the chat, trying to find more questions. Um, we've gotten a lot of good ones so far and I missed a bunch after I found the initial uh, batch of questions and I just hit the bottom, but I think I missed um, some at the top that I had written down for us to ask. Miss Mercine asked about the Power SI and uh, I thought it was part of the banana question, but it's not. So I'm gonna go back to that. They said, I'm using Armor SI, so not Power SI, sorry. Armor SI for the first time this grow. I've been reading that some people pH it down to seven after adding it. Yeah, this was the question I, I talked about. But they, there's a second part I wanted to add. Oh, okay. So cool. I'm just going back all the way to the beginning. Before adding the rest of the newts and then pHing down, Miss Mercine also says, I normally mix newts in proper order and pH. Is pHing after adding silica the best practice or just at the end? What's everyone's thought? Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah, so we did address the whole question. <laughs> sorry to go through all that. I thought, so. I thought there might be more. <laughs> smoking yeah. on some TK91, which is Triangle Kush, cross the Chem 91. Shout out to Canarado, who bred that. It's no longer in stock, so you're shit out of luck if you don't already have the seeds or the cut. Um, but yeah, it's some really, really fire shit. It's a creeper, too. So like 30 minutes after you smoke it, it hits you like, holy shit. I didn't realize I used that much. But uh, good stuff. I have a quick question for Brandon. Let's hear it. He mentioned potassium silicate. Do you use potassium sulfate at all, uh, at all, at all, or in flour? Um, I mean, I always just do the potassium silicate as opposed to potassium sulfate. That answers okay. that. I want to give uh, Can Can Grow a shout out. He's resurfaced in our little sheep home grow chat. He is alive. He's well. I know the listeners were probably concerned because we all sort of speculated on where has he been and we reached out to him and weren't able to get a hold of him. He is okay. He's doing well, uh, especially in regards to like the earlier part of this episode. You know, life is fragile and people can be lost in this community, unfortunately. So it's great to see that he is alive and well and just had to take a little step away. Um, if you want to check out his content, on his YouTube, he did a bunch of grows in the, what I'd call sea of green style, where he worked from a smaller plant count up to basically as many as he could fit in his four by fours um, in like rock wool cubes and flood and drain kind of setup. So he had a great example of sea of green for anybody who's interested in how the plants, even though he had like wedding cake on one side and like blue dream on one side and like white widow down the middle, you'd see like the really tall ones, they'd all be that single stalk and I think maybe he was pruning the side branches to encourage them all to go straight up if they did grow that way. But um, you can definitely achieve a sea of green even with multiple strains within uh, the same tent. And his channel did, I think, an excellent job of um, capturing that style of cultivation for anybody who's interested. Because like I said, he's been gone for a little while. So it'd be nice to go back and give some of his uh, videos some love and some comments and thumbs up if they're still up. I don't know if he like deleted any of his stuff or not. 
but uh, just want to shout out Can Can Grow because uh, we miss you, bud, and you're always welcome back on this panel whenever you'd like to jump in. I know you also do the Hydro Hustlers as well. I want to jump on Miss Mercine's question that just came up in chat, sort of following up on this, and since we've been talking about potassium silicate, um, potassium silicate is really better in an organic grow. Um, it's only monosilicic acid that is absorbable by plants, and microbes can break down potassium silicate into monosilicic acid. Um, but if you're operating in any kind of hydroponic grow, you should provide monosilicic acid directly. That's a good point. I think a lot of people think that uh, one is available and use it in hydroponics, even though it might not be providing any benefit in reality. So you don't want to spend your yeah, money. Yeah, there's models. no direct benefit to the plant from potassium silicate. It, its only route sort of is through bacteria, um, and there will still be some bacteria in a hydroponic grow, and they will still probably process some of it. But you're not going to get the same dose unless you have an active sort of microbial colony. I'm just scrolling up through the chat right now, trying to see if I can find any more questions. If you guys have seen any that you would like to address, uh, feel free to call out or ask it and then uh, someone pass it someone on. asked if we all you supplement with CO2 and I'll answer. I don't necessarily go to elevated levels, but I make sure I, uh, I have a tank and I, and I um, make sure it doesn't get depleted all the way. I'll say I don't add CO2 at all to my plants or my grow. If anybody would love to, uh, lend me a CO2 monitor just so I could see what my ambient levels of CO2 are in my uh, living space. I'd be very curious. I'd send it back to you, I promise. Um, but yeah, because I've looked into it and like most homes, the ambient level outside is 400. But if you live in a sealed space, it can get up to like a thousand just naturally. And 800 is enough to put your PPFD readings up to 1500 with some plants. So if you're in a living space, it's a good chance that you have high CO2 levels. And that's what I'm thinking. That's why I'm really curious. I don't supplement, like I said, with like a bottle or mushroom bags or any other mechanism other than I have two cats that live here and myself and my wife live here and we're in a very small space. Um, we do bring in fresh air outside, which is at a constant 400. So it's adding 400 back in constantly plus whatever I'm exhaling. So like if I'm doing yoga in my house. Okay, so you have 400 all the time basically then. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you're I'm wondering if it goes up at all, above 400, even with the air intake. When lights out, I'm sure it does. Uh, one of the things that I noticed, too, is uh, for, like, my, since I redid my home grow, um, everything is really well in sealed. Uh, and I'm also in soil, and so the soil actually off-gasses off -gasses its own CO2. Um, so my tanks never thrive. Like, my tanks never Brandon, you cut out. Could you repeat that yeah. just last sentence? Yeah. Everything you just Tanks said. Never reached. We're getting some sort of echo vibration or uh, reverberation or something. Okay, so I might have been my bird. Um, oh, you know what? Sorry, I think my phone might be dying. Um, anyway, uh, this is this, the the soil is making enough CO two that a lot of times my tanks don't kick on. Most of the time, my, my tanks don't kick on because the, there's adequate soil that's pumping enough CO2 into the atmosphere. What do you have it set at? 
Oh, I have it set at 1200, but it never comes oh, off. Oh, wow. Okay. Yours wow. goes, I That's mean, I remember good. I was there at night and your CO2 was like 3200 or 3800 or something crazy just from all the CO2 from the soil, basically. Yeah. So one of the things is like, so we're not exhausting any of our CO2 at night and we get up to like 2800, um, but it doesn't have any negative effect on the plants. And even in the daytime, we have really high, we can have high CO2 levels throughout the day. And it doesn't, I haven't seen any negative, uh, I haven't seen any negative, you know, results out of, because of it. So I'm not sure that, uh, I don't know if you can really overdo CO2. I mean, I haven't seen it personally. I know Wolverine Grower on GML mentioned that he's actually actively doing an experiment because he's just curious and he's dumping all the CO2 at night to see if it adds any benefit. And he's got like some like 40 light grower rooms that he's consistently pulled X amount of pounds per light off of specific cultivars for the last X amount of years. So he's going to have like a pretty large control condition and then try and change it and see if there is any benefit. So if you're curious about that, um, he's doing, he's doing it actively to see. I am. Um... I decided one day to test the theory of CO2 will kill the spider mites on a plant. So I took one of my plants that fit in a garbage pail and I put it in there and I made a hole in the lid of the garbage pail and I put my CO2 in there and I filled it up with CO2. And I, I didn't leave it very long, maybe like an hour. And I took it out and the spider mites, I don't know, you know what? I don't even know if the spider mites are dead or not, but Long story short, my plants did get affected drastically. They all had slits in the leaves in like a couple of days. They made like slits in the leaves. So I know crazy concentration of CO2 is a little hard to plant. And it'll also hurt humans if you're not careful. Um, pumping it into a sealed oh, yeah. garbage can can be potentially dangerous if you it's fully sealed and it starts creating pressure. Uh, it can create an explosion. Not that that would happen in a garbage can setup like you were talking about. But, but just, it's not flammable, though, no. It CO2 levels, yeah, pressurized though. pressurized CO2. Yeah, it can make a... 5,000 is where it's officially dangerous, as, as far as I'm yeah, concerned. Yeah. Above 2,000, though, people do start reporting being drowsy and having Headaches. health issues. So I wouldn't yeah. suggest anybody work in levels above 2,000 for extended periods of time. But people talk about doing it in the garden all the time. So there are people out there that have done it. And, uh, I think it's overkill if you go over like, two, yeah, if you go anything over two two thousand, even probably less than that is overkill. When Brandon was talking about earlier, his kicked up pretty high, but that was during lights out. You're typically not in your grow rooms during the lights out period, and that as soon as the lights come back on, the plants start eating that up, so it drops down towards his twelve hundred number, and it will only kick the tanks on if it goes below twelve hundred. So um, I just wanted to make that clarification because some people will just hear numbers and think. Uh, well, they said this earlier and didn't address it, so I wanted to... Uh... I, I, I can actually kind of gauge my soil cycling capacity based off of how much CO2 it's producing, because if I don't see the, C, uh, the CO2 levels being consistent uh, during lights on, I know that the biological component of the soil is not as active. Is it microbes that are giving off the CO2 or what's the process of them breaking things down, all of it? Yeah, so what's happening is there's constantly being CO2 released um, from the uh, breakdown of all the stuff in the soil, all the organic matter, the carbon's being released. 
I wanted to address something in the chat. This may seem very obvious, but I think it is good to address because legal issues do matter. Um, sea of green may not be the best in certain environments because of plant count issues, which is a great point. Um, if you do have a limited plant count, growing larger plants is usually a much better option and legally safer option if you're going to get like penalized or put in jail, depending on the number of plants that you have. So consider that if you're a sea of green grower, but it seems like most people that are getting into sea of green either aren't worried about their plant count or um, have enough raisinness in their nature that they will just go for it if they think that's the best cultivation style. You can style. do a sea of green in a, in a small tent too. I mean, you can put you know, six plants in a two by two tent and have a very small sea of green. Um, it, it does still help the turnover time with photo period plants. I mean, so you can produce a, a good harvest in less time there. Um, but I totally agree with you, Jack. If you have a plant count and you're dealing with sort of wanting to maximize production under that, I actually think that that's one of the, the rare uh, sort of opportunities where a true scrog. I don't think a lot of growers really do scrogs. They sort of use trellises to hold up their plants, but where you're really trying to get a plant to spread out as wide as possible to have like as big of a, a harvest as you possibly can is a better approach probably if you're really plant count limited. I wanted to shout out more Eagle of a Gardens. lake of green than a sea of green. Good point. I want to shout out Eagle Gardens in the chat. He said headache and nausea at 2000. He's referring to parts per million of CO2. Yeah. Wanted to bring that up because those are very unpleasant uh, symptoms and they are statistically proven for most of the population at that level of CO2. If you're exposed to it for a certain amount of time, you might start to experience those things. And those two alone are unpleasant enough to me for me to suggest like, yeah, just don't be in above 2000 uh, PPMs of CO2 if you don't absolutely have to be. Like if you're going and, in and I would just, night to save something in an emergency, that's like once a month or something. But if it's your everyday job, try to, you know, make it so that you don't have to be breathing that in. I think most workplaces are going to regulate that just for legal purposes. They don't want to be at liability. I, I think in the final analysis, CO2 is important in certain climates that really require sealed spaces. And I understand that. Um you know, in, in other spaces, I don't, I, I think that what running CO2 does is allows you to sort of maximize returns to area. And if you need to, if you're limited in your footprint, if you're limited in your area, and you absolutely need to maximize production within that area, then CO2 has a role for home growers, um, even if they could get away with ventilated spaces. But I mean, to be honest, carbon dioxide is a pollutant. Um, it, it's one of the leading greenhouse gases. And one of the best benefits of being a gardener is that we're actually trapping CO2 and releasing oxygen. And you're, you're negating all of that when you start supplementing carbon dioxide. Your grow is going to be releasing more carbon dioxide into the air than oxygen it's releasing into the air. I mean, I like living in my condo because we have so many plants and we probably have a, a relatively lower carbon dioxide, um, you know, PPM as a result of having all of those plants. But just it's not just air. about maximizing the returns to sort of the, the space that I'm growing the, the cannabis in. Um, so just remember that. I mean, there's other things to think about and there's other sort of aspects of our responsibility as gardeners. That's a great point, Doc. Um, and also, I think house plants or just cannabis plants in general are natural air purifiers. So, like, not only are they taking up CO two and benefiting the environment that way, but for you living in that environment, it's gonna basically make your air healthier to breathe. 
Um, Kate Armstrong asks, what do you think about alpha feminized seeds? Would you ever make some? Um, I'll answer that first. Me personally, no. I have no interest in making feminized. Um, I know that it's a really big demand. And I, I'm not like a seed seller or anything. I just do it for my own personal joy right now. But um, Kyle on our panel is a breeder and so is um, the American one. But just for some context, alpha feminized breeding is a term that I hear only coming out of ethos genetics. It's sort of like calling a ceramic metal halide light LEC or light emitting ceramic because although there's feminized seeds, he's like branding his thing alpha fem because his process, so he claims, is unique in creating it. He, this is ethos claims, not mine, ethos genetics, who a lot of people like and I respect, but um, he claims that if he gets his CO2 level to a certain point and uses a little bit of gibberellic acid, that the healthiest mom or female plant will have one branch on the lower end of the plant become male and pollinate the rest of the room. He said it'll always be the tallest plant and it grows up taller than the rest, like an alpha female or almost like a male. It's taller because it wants to dump its pollen down on the rest of the plants. So with that context, Kyle, um, do you have any plans of attempting the alpha femme uh, methods or any, any thoughts on it? And then I guess the American one you could follow up. Well, I mean, I have my own opinions uh, about ethos. Um, Am I even, um, just to clarify, because I think that I've got what he's saying right, but to your knowledge, is that what alpha femme is? Or is that like what you gather from it, something within that range? Yeah, I, I feel like basically that's what he's like trying to describe. I don't know how much of it I I believe. I feel like uh, like so many other people, like, I'm not going to start throwing out names right now, but uh, I think it's a, <clears throat> I think it might be a possible cover up for some of his gear herming, but uh, yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, there's no factual proof or, or anything like that. So I don't know. That is actually a good point. That'd be a convenient excuse. Oh, my stuff isn't just herming. I, I breed with alpha fems. So it carries that trait <laughs> that it tends to, but he had the claim though, that like he thinks OG Kush and Cam are part of that category or even Girl Scout cookies. Like if you don't clean up the lower part of the plant, it will throw a bunch of male pollen sacks on just some lower branches. And he claims also yeah, that's cornbread mafia. Cornbread mafia, the guys um, in Kentucky that grew a bunch of stuff, they started with, I believe, Acapulco gold. And within 10 years, the one alpha female plant, he said, pollinated like the plants next to it. And then that 10 foot circle range the next year all grew more like regionally that were basically like adapted to like that alpha female that was able to adapt and that it spread and spread and spread until they had a um, basically IBL Acapulco gold that finishes in Kentucky and is acclimized to Kentucky. So it's an interesting thought. Uh, the American one, do you have any thoughts on that? I have thoughts no. on actually. Alpha um, male kind of sounds like a, a Chaz to me, you know, uh, but that's Bono. But um, I'm not... <laughs> I know the market dictates that they, everybody wants feminized seeds, and now more people want feminized auto seeds. But um, my whole Brandon, thing with that is- Brandon, can you mute your mic? They were getting feedback, Brandon. I didn't want to um, ever spray anything on a plant that I wouldn't be able to smoke. So I haven't delved into the fem seeds. And uh, I've heard st stranger stories. So he's basically saying, if you have uh, your garden, and it's full of females. If you 
keep up in the CO2. Eventually, one plant's going to shoot a male branch out of the bottom, and that's the alpha great male. That I mean, female. Alpha male. female, yeah. Yeah, it's that like, we should use the pollen from. I don't buy that at all. I, I mean, feel like that characterization, opinion. that characterization, the alpha female is just so weird and not in keeping with like nobody considers plants in this way. And it's even, anthropomorphic, and you're, right? You're absolutely right. I haven't because heard this in regards to plants. Yeah, before. and even and yes, and you're right. It, it wasn't is coined by a scientist. It was coined by some dude. It's right. <laughs> and it's a marketing term. It's it's very anthropocentric, and also yeah, and like the alpha omega wolf pack thing is also totally bunk. You can look up the person who took that infamous photo and. And, you know, all those diagrams that you see on social media were like the, the alpha's in the front because he's the alpha and the omega's in the back where the beta is doing this. It's it's um maybe unsurprising. Bro science. More complex than that. Yeah, bro science. Yeah. Spartan growing. No, I know you've well, got to get going. Really, the best science gotta, from that Spartan comes on herding animals, Matt, and, and sort of understanding how sort of hierarchy and dominance works amongst like the ruminants and like how sheep form, you know, hierarchical societies amongst a group of sheep. Um, and there really is sort of one leader animal in that case, which would be the, the alpha animal. Um, but yeah, we, we misuse this. It's actually, I think it's the opposite of anthropomorphizing because we're taking something that, that is more valid about um, other animals and, and sort of mapping it onto humans in certain contexts um, and now potentially onto plants. So I wanted to give uh, Spartan Grown a second to give his sign out because I know he's got uh, another show coming up. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I just, uh, you know, thank guys for letting me come on and talk with you again today. This was a good episode. I love, these are my favorite when I get it. We could just interact with chat. That's really what the show is about. So shout out to you, chat, first and foremost. Um, you know, and uh, just, uh, I guess the message I'll just leave everybody with is just, you know, tell the people that are close to you that you love them. You never know, you know, shit happens. So, uh, you know, let them know. You never know when they'd be taken away from you. Growers love everybody. Growers love. Growers love Spartan. Spartan, we love you here, brother, and everywhere yeah. that you go. I really do enjoy your Peace content. Out, Spartan. And uh, everything you bring to the show. Thank you. See you next Thanks. week, dude. Appreciate you guys. Thanks. That said, this uh, week, they say time flies when you're having fun, so maybe we'll have to do some more of these uh, in the chat episodes. I, I've also heard people say that they really like the topic episodes, even when they break out later on. So we'll try and do a little mix of both here in the future, uh, based on whatever most of the listeners or panel members want. But with that being said, we've only got five minutes left until our um, six o'clock hour out here on the West Coast, nine o'clock on the East Coast, which is normally our time before the Michigan Bros Grow Show goes on. Even though they didn't last week, I do believe they will be having a episode this week. So without further ado, Brandon Rust, I'll give you the chance to give your sign out. All right, thanks. Uh, I I always love being here. I like to interact with the panels and talk about weed. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. So um, if you guys are interested in finding my profile and kind of what I do, look at my pictures and the education that I do, On uh, you can find me on IG at Russ, uh, Russ Brandon, and then you can find my page, Okashi Earthworks, for my company. Um, my l- website is live. I just made, need to make a couple of changes and also there's a lot of cool stuff coming i'm doing a seed drop here soon doing a, something with me and gene a bunch of like media stuff with big smo and johnny richter from the Cottonmouth kings um like i've got so much stuff going on uh next spring i'm hoping to do like a 10 15 000 plant pheno hunt at my new farm 
so yeah follow along it's gonna be it's gonna get so crazy i'm really excited i know i am following along currently and i can't wait to see the progress and updates that come along with that brandon thank you as much uh, as always for your time i know you're a very busy individual so we really appreciate it and uh, enjoy talking about cannabis with you as well uh, next up matthew gates yeah, I also really enjoyed the opportunity to answer a bunch of questions and, and be part of that process. Um, for those who are interested in further help in the regards of integrated pest management, you can find my best content on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, where I was interacting in chat. Uh, you can find also a recent interview I did with Eagle Gardens, uh, episode 181, with Buck and Talking Shit with Evil, Eagle. <laughs> And uh, um, yeah, I'm actually working on a video for some observational footage of a, a Western yellow-striped armyworm, which is one of the various caterpillars people are seeing all around uh, in the West uh, North America area. So if you're curious about caterpillars, you can check that video out soon too. I am curious. I know that they're definitely a big time pest um, in a lot of parts of the world. So. As always, I enjoy your content and your videos, so I look forward to whenever that comes out. Make sure to check out Matthew at Zinc Angel on Instagram and Zenthanol on YouTube, as well as Zenthanol Consulting Group uh, for consulting on your IPM needs. Next up, we have Coco for Cannabis, Dr. MJ. Hey, Jack. Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Rob at the top of the show, and I just wanted to, to again say, you know, we're going to miss him um, and that uh, he really embodied the spirit of collaboration. I, I just encourage everybody to, um, you know, do something along those lines, be kind, um, embrace that, that sort of spirit that Rob always shared with all of us. Um, and I, I appreciate you hosting the show. I appreciate everybody's thoughts and blessings in, in the chat. Um, all the rest of the panelists, um, you know, I wasn't sure how today's show was going to be, but it was, it was nice to just have, have some time to, to chat with all of you. So, um, yeah, I'm Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com, and I will uh, look forward to seeing you guys all again next week. Thank you for coming, Doc. I really appreciate the uh, heartfelt words you gave at the top of the hour. It is very clear that you and Rob had a close friendship and that you cared a lot about him as a person. And I think it was nice that we were able to give a little bit of a spotlight and, uh, you know, remember him in a positive way this week and encourage people to do a lot of what he was doing, which is just, you know, spreading the good word about cannabis and being really open. Like you always talk about, Doc, you're probably one of the biggest advocates I know of not hoarding anything from genetics or IP, you think it's all, and I agree with you very much so in this, that it's all about spreading and sharing that love. Because if we didn't do that, if people like Josie Wales, who was also on this show, rest in peace, um, didn't pass that cut at like Michigan cannabis cups out to like basically everybody, then maybe nobody would have ever heard of it. Maybe GG4 would have never been a thing yeah. that the world was still raving about and, and talking about and enjoying. So, um, share be kind and, and be part of the community like rob was definitely uh, next up thanks jen kyle uh predicative breeding hey thanks jack <clears throat> um yeah so random news i don't know i didn't get a chance to tell you guys this i had a uh do you guys i don't know if you guys know who jesse ventura is i guess he used yeah. to be a pro wrestler and now he's like the governor of uh minnesota i think or something like that missouri I don't, i'm not sure but apparently somebody one of his 
affiliates reached out to me to do some kind of a breeding project. I don't know if it's to like create him a plan or if they want to like, I don't even really know, but I have a, uh, basically a zoom meeting on Tuesday. So it'll be kind of exciting to see where that goes. But, uh, um, but yeah, thanks for just hosting Jack. I appreciate everyone that's here. Uh, I feel bad about the whole, uh, situation with, um, him passing away because I basically offered him to do a, I was supposed to do a podcast with him and I never got a chance to doing it. So I kind of feel like horrible and I can't take that back because it's like too late now, but, um, or maybe I can at least still fulfill it with uh, Jordan, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm truly sorry about all that. And, uh, if anyone's looking at anything I'm working on, feel free to check out predicated breeding on any social media platform. And if you're looking for a good feminized seeds, pbreeding.com is my website, uh, or just if you ever want to just reach out to me, uh, anybody can do that as well. But, uh, thanks again, Jack and everybody take care. Thank you, Kyle. And that's pbreeding.com if you're looking for Kyle's genetics. And I totally agree with you, Kyle. It is unfortunate you weren't able to uh, have that link up, but I don't think you or anybody else should uh, beat yourself up over that kind of thing or regret. A lot of times when we lose somebody, it's easy to have like survivor's guilt in a sense where, you know, you're still alive and you may have had things planned with them or things didn't end exactly how you wanted to. But I think that is a moment to grow and learn as a person and encourage yourself in the future to maybe make those appointments sooner or, or follow up on things like that uh, a little bit more consistently or something like that so that, um, you know, you can at least learn something from it and take something positive from it moving forward into the future for sure. Last, certainly not least, one of my favorites, the American one. Uh, Jack, thanks for taking the reins of the show like you've been doing, and uh, thanks to the panel for showing up, and Chad especially. Uh, you know, my condolences to all those feeling a loss right now. Um, I know if uh, if time had gone on and uh, I did a, a show with Rob, I would have really connected. He's obviously, um, you know, touched a lot of people and and had nothing good but good vibes and good coming out of them so i feel for you and uh sorry for the loss and um yeah thanks for everyone showing up that's uh you know that's all for today that's what it's all about you know we all make an effort to show up each week so that we can share our knowledge share our love with the community try and build this community up and, and bring people together that's what it's all about at the end of the day that's what rob was doing that's what we're doing here and we'll continue to do in honor of him in honor of cannabis as just champions of this plant as stewards of the earth and stewards of the cannabis plant i think it's all our sort of moral responsibility to be the best possible people that we can be and uh, treat ourselves our family our loved ones as best as we can and just be a good uh, member of society and with that i'll get off my soapbox this has been at jack greenstock it's been a pleasure speaking with all of you in the live chat here on youtube anybody who's listening afterward on the podcast we really appreciate all of you um, the cheap home grow has been going for a few years now We've been trying our best to share as much content as we can and keep the community engaged and uh, stay in touch with all of you. So we really appreciate you coming back each week, listening to us and, and sharing your thoughts and your questions. And uh, in emotional times like this, it's great to have a community that can stand together. I want to give another big shout out before we go to uh, Eagle Gardens. You can catch them tonight at 1130 on the East Coast or 830 here on the West Coast for fucking talking shit with Eagle. Uh, show that I'm a big fan of. And also right now we're cutting a little bit into the Michigan Bros Grow Show time. So I'm going to call it right there. This is Jack Greenstock signing out. Grow and love everyone. Peace out.